I'm Christina Bosnakis. And I'm Gabby Gaudet. And you're listening to the TDN's Let's Talk. Welcome back for the latest edition of Let's Talk. And today we will be talking to vets, Christina. And one of them is Dr. Bill Hawk. He is a track practitioner. He practices at both uh, in Kentucky and also at Oakland. And very well known on the East Coast, Dr. Patty Hogan, uh, an equine surgeon and uh, specializing in orthopedics. And she's done tremendous work, including with Smarty Jones. Famously, uh, she really got him on track as a young horse. And we also have Dr. Dion Benson, the chief veterinary uh, officer at the Stronic Group. I hope you enjoy the latest edition of Let's Talk. Thank you all for joining us here this afternoon. Um, we'll just get right into it. Obviously, each of you uh, have different backgrounds and are currently kind of do very different things, whether it be practicing at the track, uh, holding a role as in the regulatory uh, area, and obviously surgeon as well. So you kind of all three of you kind of fill these different spots in terms of the broad spectrum of vets and i just want to know uh first and foremost kind of what are some of the challenges that you guys face uh currently and anybody can pick this up well How about age before beauty bill <laughs> all right fair enough. I'll, I'll, I'll start out a little bit one of the biggest problems i have is finding young veterinarians that want to come into practice with us we have demands as far as the hours that we have to work, as far as um, time off, benefits. We certainly have problems with regulatory considerations. Uh, there's a lot of paperwork now that we have to comply with. Um, there's a lot of young veterinarians that are scared to death about coming in equine medicine, particularly at the racetrack. And if they make a mistake and not something that's uh, – egregious, but they make a mistake that can be sanctioned pretty harshly. And they've got student loans and they've got a lot of things to have to satisfy, including making a living, which may be, and I'm talking about as simply as they walk in a stall, the wrong stall, treat the wrong horse. And that can create a big problem. And that, that type of scenario really scares them to death. But the biggest thing is the hours. We can't find people who want to work the long hours that a racetrack practitioner is asked to work. And uh, uh, it creates a problem for us older folks, if you will. And we're those of us, many of us are staying on a little bit longer than we'd like to. But we feel a commitment to our clients and certainly to our horses to keep going. And uh, we, uh, well, we, we do have a real hard problem finding young veterinarians coming to, to, to the practice of, of equine medicine and veterinary medicine. So, you know, we, uh, we'd like to see that change. We don't see a real bright future for that. Patty, do you see any young people that, I, uh, I don't you that uh, want to come to the racetrack or most of them want to go into a uh, surgical practice? What, what are you seeing? It's, it's all over actually in equine that there's a real um, shortage of people interested in equine. I mean, just even the internship and residency programs are really suffering for a lack of interest or um, lack, of, lack of applications, really. Whereas when I was applying for internships and residencies, it was so difficult to get one because there was just so many uh, applicants, whereas now there's internships that are want, left wanting to fill. So 
I don't see it so much myself personally because I'm in a solo practice with another associate surgeon, but um, we hear it from all of our referring veterinarians that they're older and they have a real hard time finding younger people to fill in the gaps and, and you know, kind of train on racetrack practice is just a, it's a different environment. You have to really have a love for it and um, a real love for the sport and an understanding of the sport. And that's been a difficult challenge for our, you know, our referring veterinarians like you. Sure. For me, myself, the biggest pressures I run into really have to do with the value of the horses that I deal with. That's one thing. And also um, the fact that most of my owners are absentee owners. You know, I'm dealing a lot of times with a trainer, communicating with the trainer or the veterinarian. And so I have to be very careful that everyone is in the loop. And especially now, there's a lot of partnerships that are huge. You know, we do some work for my racehorse, for instance. They have about 3,500 owners on a horse. And I actually will get calls, you know, from people that own a very small percentage. They're real good as a an entity to try to decrease that. But there's a real communication challenge sometimes that everyone knows what's happening with the horses, what the expectations are, um, what the outcome is going to be. So that's, for me, the the pressure of the value of the horses that we deal with. From my perspective, I mean, we certainly have um, a lot of responsibility in the roles and the vets that work for us. They have a lot of responsibility to try to really make hard choices with very little information. Uh, You know, we get to see the horses for a few minutes or less, and we're trying to make decisions on whether this horse should race, whether it should wait and go another day, whether it needs diagnostics, and we don't have a lot of the background information on what's been done with the horse. So that makes it a little challenging. I mean, as far as getting people in, you know, we certainly see that traditionally racetrack regulatory practice has been seen as a retirement role. And I think honestly that we are trying to move away from that uh, and get younger people involved earlier. So I fight the stereotype of people who feel like, you know, they're going to miss something by not being in the uh, private practice, injecting joints and, and, you know, treating colics. Whereas, you know, I think that there can be a very rewarding practice in, in regulatory medicine, and you're going to see probably more lameness cases than anyone will in a week uh, than any private practitioner will in a week, just because you're looking at every horse, you know, on the track. And so it's, it's really a challenging role. Um, but, you know, the one thing we do have going for us certainly is we have a little bit better hours than the regu- than the private practitioners do. And I promise, I can always promise my uh, vets that they'll never have to come in at two in the morning for a colic. so is it that we don't have are there not a lot of students coming out of veterinary schools to basically to come into equine um, uh, veterinary medicine or is it that these students that are coming out of the veterinary schools are are going into other disciplines like maybe they're going into small animal practice or you know they're not coming in because it seems like there there are a lot of there's quite a few schools and that there are a lot of students, but then it seems to be a shortage. So I'm just wondering, I'm missing what's the connection? Like where are they just not coming to equine? Definitely not. There's there's definitely a um, a real shortage of young people interested in agricultural fields. I mean, we see it yes in equine, but the people that are in large animal bovine, uh, avian, you know, all the other agricultural. Um, aspects are really hurting for people. I mean, 
look at the kids today. How many of them grow up on a farm? Not that many anymore, you know, so they just don't really have the exposure, um, just not the outreach that, that used to be when I was growing up. So I think there's definitely a lack of overall kids that are interested in an agricultural based career. Is it a money issue? Uh, I'm not, I wouldn't say that necessarily. I mean, there, there's trade-offs, like Bill was saying about the hours and, mm. you know, the, how long it takes you to establish yourself. I mean, certainly that's an aspect, but you have to have a real love for horses to be a equine vet. I mean, there's just, it's not something you just say, I'm, I'm going to go to work and be an accountant. I'll, I'll go ahead and be an equine vet. It's something that you really have a passion for. Well, I don't think many people necessarily understand the hours that go into it. Um, from the outside looking in. So, I mean, Dr. Hawk, can you kind of speak to that? And what are the hours? What Anyone can, can answer this question, but what are the, the hours? How often does your phone go off? How often do you have to be at the barn? How, how often are you on? Or I guess the better question is, how often are you off? <laughs> Not often. The, the, the truth is it depends on whether we've got day racing or night racing. And it has to do with when I'm at Churchill Downs working, usually four out of five, I'm sorry, five out of seven mornings per week, I show up at four o'clock in the morning. And then I'll usually work until about noon. Uh, I take a couple of hours off and generally are doing paperwork. Uh, then I come back around three o'clock and I'll work until about Oh, 5.30, 6 o'clock, and that's if I have no emergencies after that and if uh, it's not a race day. Uh, that's a dark day, but there's no racing. If it's a racing day with afternoon racing, I'll have that work scheduled in the morning until noonish, and then I usually take about an hour off for lunch. I'm back at 1 o'clock for that afternoon's racing card, and I'll stay there until usually the last race because I typically – Fortunately, I'm blessed with a good practice. And uh, Steve Asmussen is probably my biggest client. So he's got many, many horses throughout the day's card. And and we scope everything. And after the last race, win, lose, or draw, I'm still scoping that horse some 30 to 45 minutes after he returns to the barn, whether he's at the test barn or whether he's come straight back. So that's, as you can see, quite a bit. Now, if it's a night racing card, which we occasionally have at Churchill, I'm usually there till midnight and then back again at four o'clock in the morning. Now, I'm kind of a workaholic and it's not necessary to do what I do, but that's what I do because my clients kind of demand it and they panic if I'm not around. Um, that's relationship. Now, Patty, I got the same way with you when you were on vacation. I couldn't send my cases over to you and I'd have to send them somebody, somebody else there at, when I was at Delaware for all those years. But it's a long, grinding day for an equine veterinarian. And even when you promise a lot less hours for a younger person and you try to have quality of life uh, issues, they still are, are, are probably still looking at about a 60-hour work week. I, I think the other thing we struggle with is we are primarily a weekend business. I mean, at the racetrack, it, I tell, I, I was talking to a vet who was interested in joining our practice or one of our, our teams this weekend. And I said, you know, the upsides are I, I can, I can actually 
give the vets quality of life because well, we start at 4.45 in the morning on a dark day, we're done by 11. If we start race day, if we start, we'll start at 4.45 in the morning and we're done by six. So there can be long days, there can be, uh, but there can be days off, there can be short days, but I can never promise them that they'll have regular weekends off. And that is challenging, especially if you've got uh, young vets with families and they want to spend time with them and you're basically telling them you're never going to be off the same time your kids are around. So, Yeah, that's, that's true in our area of, of veterinary medicine as well. I'm going to digress for just a moment to, I read something not too long ago that the uh, AVMA published and they said that about 1% of all veterinary students graduating go into equine medicine or surgery. And of that 1%, half of those are gone within five years. So I don't know how many graduate every year from veterinary school. You guys have an idea, maybe 2,000 or something like that. And say the number was 2,000, I don't know. That's probably taking a shot here. Is that close, Leon? Yeah, I would say that's about right. I'm trying to think because we had, there's a probably what, 24 vet schools and 100 students apiece average. So maybe yeah. 2,500. There's some attrition, maybe, you know. But say there's 20 to 25 per year interested in equine medicine and you're losing half of those within uh, five years, then you can see where the squeeze comes in. And that's, you know, that's problematical for us. And, and, the, and the pool isn't there. Now, I know in my practice, I'm looking for somebody now, and I'm looking to pay considerably more than what they could make if they went into small animal medicine or considerably more than a lot of practices. I'm not getting a lot of response. Uh, I really am, am not, and it's very frustrating. And I started so I reached out to Larry Bramlage about three weeks ago, and I said, Larry, have you got any interns finishing that uh, – might be interested in coming to race practice. And I refer a lot to Larry in Kentucky when I'm there. I'm also at Oakland during the winter months. Uh, but he said, Bill, he had nobody in mind. They can't fill all the spots they can for moving on in their own business and with their interns. They're not filling all their intern spots at Rude Riddle. This is kind of the, that's, I don't know. That's that, that's the place to be. I would suppose you know the, the top of the food chain, but they can't. You know they can't fill all those. And I was just stunned with what Larry had to say. So that's you know that's a big problem facing us at the racetrack. Uh, you know I, I'm going to digress another minute. It's a good time for me to to, to say this to Dion. Um, many of us for many years as racetrack practitioners have been on board more than you think regulatory veterinarians about what's best for the horse. And we sometimes feel the regulatory people are on one side of the fence and the racetrack guys or girls are on the other side of the fence, and that shouldn't be that way. And I would hope, and I know in Kentucky and Oakland both, with Dr. Lokank here at Oakland and with Nick Smith in Kentucky, I share a lot of radiographs and a lot of diagnostics and a lot of information because you said that you didn't often get a lot of background information, but I share that in my practice. 
so that we can make a good decision about that force. Nobody wants the breakdowns. Nobody wants a jock to get injured. Nobody wants the public perception that we're suffering right now uh, that, that we've got to overcome. So, you know, I would like to see the regulatory and, and the racetrack folks have a little bit better rapport. And I, it can be done and it must be done. I, I realize there's some strained relationships at various places, but for the most part, just like you are, we're about the horse. You know, we have economic considerations from owners putting pressure on us, from trainers and everything else. But when you get a little more gray in your hair and when you get a little more experience, it's easy to look at it and say, no, we're not going to do that. That's not the path we're going to take. And I understand some younger people have problems with that kind of pressure, but I'd like to see you guys reach out, whether it's one-on-one or in a group setting or whatever, to know more than you think, most racetrack veterinarians see things closer to what you see things in within what you might think. So I'm just glad I had the opportunity to state that to you. Yeah, I, I think that you would be surprised because I would say that probably 85 to 90 percent of our relationships with the vets are very good. We have regular meetings with them. Uh, we have uh, um, one-on-ones, they will come to us and say, I'm having a tr- hard time getting this vet to, or this trainer or this owner to do this. It really needs to be done. So they will come to us and say, can you help me? And then we just happen to stop by and say, you know, I don't like the way this looks because we, as a, as a company have such a presence at our tracks with vets, it's not unusual for us to stop by a trainer, a trainer's barn on a regular basis and say, Hey, I saw this horse out in the track. I want to see him jog and, and no, this is, this horse can't come to the track until it said X, Y, or Z done. Never mentioning that the vet had asked us to do this. Um, and we do this even when the vet doesn't ask us. And so we do have a lot of those great relationships where we suffer is that five to 10% of the train or of the vets who have, I think there are some private vets who have the opinion that their job is to get that horse to the race and their job is to make that horse win as opposed to, you know, make sure the horse is ready to race and then, and then help it race. Um, so in the cases where we have these good relationships, it works really well. Where we suffer is where we can't call that vet or when we, if we do call that vet, we feel like we won't get a straight answer. And I don't think it's the majority, but just like I'm sure you have regulators that you have that won't deal with work with you and are very difficult. We have, private vets that we work with that are very difficult. And I think that's just, you know, you have to always worry about what I, you know, the least common denominator, whichever way it goes. You have an idea how we could expand that to be better? I mean, I think there, there has to be an inherent trust and I'm not sure how you build that except for over time. I mean, when I started in Kentucky or excuse me, in California and some of the, the kind of, um, more unique policies that we implemented and, and kind of it we started from a very difficult place and a very tough and distrustful place and it changed very quickly um but you know getting that other places we had to have that almost crisis in, in racing to get that and i'm not sure how you men you know you you manufacture that um kind of urgency without a crisis. 
We will continue this episode of Let's Talk in just a moment. But first, we want to say a special thanks to our sponsor and First Racing. Uh, We're on the heels of a very big weekend for First Racing, both at Santa Anita and Gulfstream Park. Successful March 5th weekend, Christina. You know, we just we've got we become accustomed to seeing these uh, these uh, cross country uh, f- like uh, bonanzas really of uh, racing, and you know we're going to see it again with the Florida Derby. We're going to see it with the Santa Anita Derby. Obviously, both those days those cards are going to be loaded uh, with graded stakes action. But you know, Gabby, really it's it's getting exciting because when we, again we're seeing the Triple Crown develop, we're starting to see some superstar emerge or potential superstars emerge and really if we look back in history Florida has been and California Santa Anita they've been two of the places where a lot of the main triple crown contenders go through so it's really exciting racing things are heating up from coast to coast we're take a moment here to get another word from our sponsors at first race the championship meet continues at Gulfstream Park with live thoroughbred racing Wednesday through Sunday. Premium stakes racing every Saturday. Witness history on Saturday, April 2nd, where the Triple Crown favorites are set to compete for their chance to be crowned the winner of the 2022 Curlin Florida Derby. An experience like none other, join us on and off the track for Florida Derby Week and let us host you in style in one of our premium restaurants or suites. For tickets and more, head to GulfstreamPark.com. And thank you again to our sponsor at First Racing. Thank you to our additional sponsor in Healthnetics as well. So today, all guests will receive a premium CBD gift set from Healthnetics for everyday aches and pains and an overall sense of calm. Try Healthnetics CBD. All Healthnetics products are all natural, made in the USA, and are THC free. Healthnetics products come with a 100% money back guarantee as well. So go to healthnetics.com and use promo code TDN to get. 25% off. Once again, thank you to our sponsors. We rejoin today's podcast. We were just talking a, a second ago about relationships and you just made me think of something because that that kind of made me laugh. Um, Patty, um, I had I have a, a colleague of mine uh, who's also, a, I like to think, who's a friend of mine, Aaron Yagoda. And I spoke to him the other day, who I know you know well. And I spoke to him the other day and I said, you know, Aaron, so what do you call, I don't know, what do I, like, what do I call Dr. Hogan? Do I call her Dr. Hogan? Do I call her Patty? Do I call her, like, and he goes, well, I call her Allstate. And I'm like, Allstate? Why do you call her Allstate? And he said, because you're in good hands, right? So apparently this is what he calls you. And it made me think of something, which was the relationships and again, it's a little bit pivoting off of just what what, uh, what Bill and Dion were talking about, the relationships between the trainers and between, you know, the different levels of the, you know, with the trainers and the vets uh, and also the regulatory side. But it's also the, those relationships are very important also between the clients and the vets as well. And that trust that you build with each other. Tell me how important it is to really have that kind of relationship with your clients that you can develop that kind of trust where they really put faith in you. To me, it's a real gift. It takes a long time to get, but it gives you such a level of confidence when you evaluate one of their horses that they're going to take your advice. I mean, it's, um, it's a totally different 
game when you have to convince someone that what you're telling them is the right thing for the horse. Whereas when you have somebody that knows you, they, they expect whatever you're going to say to them, they're going to take it. Um, you're both on the same page. It, it's a real gift. It makes my job so much easier. And I'm so happy that a lot of my clients are really long-term clients. I mean, one of my first clients was uh, Todd Pletcher when he was starting out. And I remember when he had a barn of nine horses and we've just gotten to know each other over the years. So now when he calls with a case, I know what his expectations are and he's extremely easy to work with because he's going to do what I think is the best thing to do once they get to know what your judgment level is. So it's a huge comfort. You're not having to second guess what your diagnostics are or you know what your recommendations are. It's, it's really nice. And I think in the end, the horse ends up winning because the right things are done and you're not um, doing things just to appease somebody. You're doing things because it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and Bill, you also have had, obviously you've been practicing, I think over 40, I think over 40 years. So you've had probably some really long, long standing clients as well. Tell me a little bit about that relationship as well and how that's developed over time. And if it's changing, if it puts pressure on you, in, in a way, because they have such faith in you? Well, for me, the, the number one thing is to give them information so that they can make an informed consent and a well-informed consent. So when you evaluate a horse, first thing you have to remember, those of us at the racetrack are kind of the first line, kind of like the family practitioner. And it's our job to know a little bit about a lot of things, but know where to go, like to someone like world-class surgeons like Patty or to uh, Larry Bramlins or others. But we have to have the ability to look at things, recognize problems, and know where to go when they're out of our realm of, of either diagnostics or treatment capabilities. So when you analyze cases, you look at it, you tell them what you believe to, to, to be there. And if you don't know, you're honest with them and say, I don't know, but here's what we're going to do to find out. And people respect you for that. If you don't know, tell them, I don't know. But I know Dr. Hogan can figure it out, or Dr. Bramage can figure it out, or we've got to do a bone scan, or we've got to do this, that, or the other thing. Then it's your job then to say, listen, I don't know, but this is the direction I believe we need to go in, and that's what I think you should do. When you when they see you recommend and refer and you're not getting into their pocket, but you're shifting it. So you're not going to benefit financially. They see you referring to somebody else. They all of a sudden say, Hey, this guy's got our horses and our best interest in mind and not necessarily his pocketbook. And I think as veterinarians, we oftentimes get accused of that too often. You know, we're just there for the money. Well, I can promise you, it's a business and we're there to make a living and to make money. I'm not going to get away from that, but we have to know what's best for the horse. And sometimes we'll give them uh, a couple of different options and say, this is what you can do. You can do a, B or C. What would you like to do? Now, most of the times I'm dealing with a trainer who has kind of the authorized agent is making the decision for the owner. And we do things accordingly. But I always offer to my trainers, 
my availability to talk directly to the owners if they so choose with their blessing. And if that's the case, then I'll speak to the owner and I'll lay it out for them as well. And we oftentimes get better compliance if we really believe something needs to be done. If I think a horse is surgical and a guy is dragging his feet about it, uh, I might say to the trainer, listen, I don't think this guy completely understands the gravity of the situation. And this is what we need to do. And so we'll phone him up and say, hey, this is what I think we need to do. Here's what can happen. If you don't do it percentage-wise, nothing's – horses can make you look pretty stupid sometimes because they overcome a lot of things that we don't think they can, and then sometimes certain things bother them that we don't think are bothering them as much as might bother another horse. But I work real hard to make sure that, that they're informed. That's the most important thing is make sure keep people are in the loop, you keep them informed, and that develops their trust. And I'm blessed that I have a lot of long, I've got some clients that I've worked for since I first started out. And I've certainly, you know, we've been a, you know, around different places and developed a lot of great relationships, you know, over time. So um, that's the way I've done it, mostly by, by, by being honest with people and telling them what I believe and then showing them the right direction if necessary. I can't underscore what Bill said about being honest. You know, a lot of times I'll say each surgery is not a good option for you here. And that has served me well over the years because it's, you know, people know that you actually do have their interest at heart and you're not just there to do the surgery. It's not going to give them a good outcome. So being honest is definitely um, made, cemented those relationships. It seems like integrity is, is always a very important uh, thing that you want to uh, have in terms, especially in this industry. But Dr. Hawk, you mentioned something about, you know, the relationships with your clients and sometimes those newer clients, they overall, I guess my question is recently, um, you know, it seems like vets, there are just like, I would compare it to um, what we have been dealing with, with police officers, right? Like one uh, police officer um, does something really bad. It's in the media and the public wants to paint all police officers with one brushstroke as being bad. Um, and I, I wonder if you feel that pressure as being vets within the, the industry. Um, do you guys, do you feel that pressure at all to, um, to make sure, I mean, you, you don't get into this profession without being absolutely in love with animals and the love of the racehorse. But do you, at the end of the day, kind of feel that pressure and that public perception lately? Yes, very much so. I mean, we've, we, we practice anymore with a lot of those pressures in mind. And, and, you know, number one is we don't want anything bad to happen to the horse or to the rider. That's, you know, not only is it bad for those two entities, but it's bad for the perception of the business and reflects poorly on the veterinarians. Um, but one thing we do, a lot of, a lot of us older guys, and myself, and there was a guy named Milton McClure. He and I used to coach up a lot of young veterinarians. You know, if we thought they were kind of stepping over the line a little bit or 
pushing the line a little bit, we get them off to the side and say, hey, not only are you affecting yourself, but you're affecting the rest of us. And we don't really like that. Uh, we had a particular situation at Oakland a few years ago that that uh, we thought a veterinarian was kind of doing some things we didn't like. And we, we coached him up a little bit. And uh, we said, listen, you're going to cause not only yourself a lot of problem, but we're not going to be able to do these procedures. They're going to take them away from us. And he kind of was adamant about his practice. He was going to do it his way. It's kind of as Dion was referring to that kind of the five or 10%. And uh, we lost the ability to do uh, shock waving at Oakland Park for 30 days. We can't even have a machine on the, on the grounds. And I find it to be a very therapeutic modality if done the right way and done under the right supervision, and and we can't do it. And so we've lost that ability to be able to properly and therapeutically treat a horse that, uh, uh, that certainly needs it. So, you know, we do, we feel the pressure to the point where we, we call out our colleagues, believe me. We'll, you know, we'll call them out and, uh, we try to do it in a behind-the-scenes way, but I'll be honest with you. There's sometimes, there's sometimes you got to drop a dime on a guy, and you know, just say to somebody like Dion and say, "Hey, I want to take another look at this," and just kind of let them know that we recognize as practitioners that it's going to reflect poorly on all of us, and maybe they could. Uh, take a look at things. And I think she knows what I'm talking about. And, and I'm, I'm not trying to say, you know, we're a jailhouse rat or something like that, but it, it bothers all of us who trying to do it right. Do you feel that pressure to just, on the regulatory side, do you feel the, the responsibility, I guess, is the better word? So, I mean, I, I think that when a veterinarian comes to us with something, some concern. I mean, we absolutely have to take it seriously. And depending on where we are, I mean, if, if it happens in Santa Anita, the wonderful thing, thing we have there is cameras everywhere. And we can just go back and look at the cameras and, you know, look at every barn, you know, you can see almost in every stall. So yeah, there, there is a lot of ability to kind of go through and say, Hey, you know, this is what we're seeing. This is our concern. And, you know, the one thing that Bill is absolutely right about is even if I do everything right, if Bill does everything right, if Patty does everything right, we are still going to have an issue if there are people in our industry, racetracks in our industry, you know, veterinarians, trainers in our industry that aren't doing the right things because they are going to become the poster children for the people who don't want racing anymore. Um, you know, we are as we are vulnerable to our worst the worst people in our industry. Um, and that's going to be, that's true of every industry. I mean, I've been a lawyer, bad lawyers make for really great jokes, but really bad precedent, bad cases. You know, the same thing happens here. It's just, we have this responsibility to make sure that racing is as fair and honest and, you know, keeping the horse at the center and putting it first is, is the way, in my opinion, to do that. But yeah, we absolutely, when we're regulating anything, we have, um, 
any complaints, any concerns that come to us, we take extremely seriously. And, you know, we're not as a, at least I can speak for the tracks that I work with. We're not afraid to, to call people in and, and call them out a little bit if we think that they've done something that's inappropriate. I was going to pivot a little bit off of that because I think that's really interesting. I, um, in, in my younger days, I was actually a science major and I worked at a veterinary hospital, an emergency hospital for small animals for about seven or eight years. So I saw a lot. And I know it's not it's not horses, but there's the same kind of dynamics happening with the client relations and the doctors and just the whole thing. And one thing that I remember was the there were times when, you know, you had most of the clients would come in. They love their animals. They love their they'll do anything for them. They were really they were great. And then you'd get sometimes these really questionable cases that would come and that, that really are towing the line of, some of them actually, they weren't even towing the line. They were just, it, it, was, it was negligence. It was, it was people who were mistreating animals. I, I saw like just heinous things. And this was just in a regular practice that I saw day to day. As a veterinarian, what is that responsibility that do you feel in terms of this animal. So you come in and you see a situation where you're thinking, and again, we, as we're saying, this is a very small percentage of what's going on in the bigger picture, as we know, but what is the responsibility of the veterinarian? Is there a responsibility personally? And is there like of a greater good kind of responsibility? And anybody can take this one. I mean, I think we, we try to take responsibility for those horses. I mean, I can give you a, for example, we had a horse that had a puncture wound that was on the track and the trainer has no money and they, they were treating it conservatively, treating it conservatively, and it was getting worse. And so finally we kind of told the trainer, you know, this horse needs to be referred. And if you're not willing to refer it, it can't stay here, but we will make sure it gets into a, an adoption program and they will send it to, you know, the surgery, the to get the surgery that it needs because it basically needed to have the whole tendon sheath cleaned out at that point. And so I think that that is one thing that we can do with, especially with the aftercare programs and having the funding to do some of those surgeries and some of those more aggressive uh, procedures. And we, we have done that as, as an organization to make sure that these horses, you know, that they can be a perfectly great riding horse once you get the treatment it needs, gets the treatment it needs that the person who has it right now, even if they want to do the right thing by the horse, they can't afford to do the right thing by the horse. So it's not always negligence. Sometimes it's just they're, they're in a really hard position. Mm -mm. Patty, obviously you've seen a lot of this, right? Yeah, I would say that um, was a huge turning point in my veterinary career when aftercare finally became mainstream. And so when I started out, it was little old ladies holding bake sales for like one horse to get its leg fixed, you know? So that has changed so much now and it has given us a lot of options. And we've been very active in my practice about campaigning against the one last race syndrome. And so we work with about seven or eight mid-Atlantic adoption agencies in, in our area. And we work exclusively really with New York. And so when there's a horse that gets a condylar fracture or has some kind of issue that is actually able to be fixed. And if it's fixed, it can do something else. We give an avenue now to those trainers and owners to get out. So the horse gets taken care of. We do the whatever it needs. We provide 
pro bono, and then it's farmed out to whatever adoption agency. That has really been a game changer for horses that kind of were at the bottom and not getting the right care and ending up in this game of chicken, um, you know, musical chairs, where whoever ended up with it didn't have the money really to fix whatever it needed. So that has changed in the last 10 years dramatically. And those programs are well in place now and has really helped um, change that scenario quite a bit. So we are seeing less and less of those end bottom claiming horses that are just run one, you know, one too many times. They're, we've kind of put that education factor in now that, that there's a way for them to get out, that um, they're not gonna be economically viable if they just keep trying to race them. So they're gonna lose money anyway. But if they get out now, the horse can have whatever attention needs and go on and everybody's happy. So that's been a huge cross off my bucket list really for for life. So um, that has been a tremendous improvement in in all of racing. I was just gonna add this to that thought. Um, This is one area that practicing veterinarians and regulatory veterinarians, in my view, worked very, very well together because every time that I've had an incidence where I thought that there was not proper care being delivered, whether it's being fed, watered, or stalls bedded properly, or certainly in an in injury not properly taken care of. I've spoke to our regulatory veterinarians anywhere I've ever been and always found that was attended to almost immediately. And I appreciate that part of it because I get really offended when somebody mistreats one of these horses because let's be honest, this is an entertainment industry and they're giving their all for our entertainment, whether it's gambling or you just like the sheer competitiveness of it they're there for our pleasure and we're not doing our part if somebody does not take care of that animal and then we don't say anything about it it's just wrong on every level so i found that when i speak up but i will say this about many many people on the racetrack if they sense that a horse isn't being properly cared for they'll usually bring it to my attention or a regulatory person's attention also they resent it they don't like it reflects poorly on them and i'm talking about hot walkers grooms other trainers everybody will usually raise us think about it to the point where somebody is proactive quickly we uh uh you know many veterinarians have done a lot of pro bono work to get that horse out of a crisis to where they can get to the off-track situation. I've done it. We've all dedicated a lot of our time, certainly a lot of uh, drugs and other materials and whatnot, x-rays, just to see the. I've x-rayed so many horses in my career because people wanted to give them away, if you will, but they they needed some information first. And I don't know how many hundreds of sets of x-rays I've taken trying to help that particular horse. And so I'm willing to do it. My colleagues, for the most part, are willing to do it. And, and you know, if it's a matter of antibiotics for an infection or a puncture wound or whatever it is, I'm proud to say that most racetrack people rally together to kind of root that kind of crap out. And I'm sorry to say it that way, but that really makes me mad. And, 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 uh, I'm glad that most of my racetrack folks feel the same way. But anyway, that's, that's, that's all I have to say about that. 
I, I think the, the biggest challenge, and, and it's what Patty was talking about, is that one less last race syndrome is, you know, it's it's not even the horse that is is broken down in the stall or injured or starving. It is trying to figure out how to get that horse that probably isn't performing well. He's starting to get sore. You know, we're, we're really limiting his options or even risking his options for a second career because I own four off-track thoroughbreds and, and ride them as often as I can with my job. And I think that, you know, having ridden them and evented at very low levels, they are amazing athletes. They, are, they will give you their all. They try hard. They are game. They are they like having something to do and a job. And I think if we can get them to that point before they are, at, you know, dealing with, with significant limitations, it is a great thing. It's just figuring out how to identify those horses. And we have um, at Stronic Group at all of our tracks, we have an aftercare coordinator who goes around and talks to people. We tend to identify these horses that are, you know, we've, they're maybe finishing 30 lengths out. They used to be winning. Now they're dropping in class and, and finishing out way out of the race. And, you know, that's the opportunity to at least start having that discussion. Um, but identifying as many of those horses as possible is, is so challenging um, and, and really important though. I was going to say, how overwhelming is it to just, think about the amount of horses that fit that mold, Dion. I mean, I think it's getting better. I think we're, we're getting less and less of those horses overall. Um, I think people are, are making those decisions earlier in some cases, but I also think that the care that's being given by the, the private veterinarians is really improving by a ton. You know, we've got at least in a couple of states, Kentucky, California, the vets are looking at these horses on a regular basis because they have to look at them before they work and they have to look at them before they race. And I think that allows veterinarians to really manage the care for racehorses, which allows them to, I think, head off a lot of the issues that, that are going to go too far, like the, the synovitis that then becomes more problematic or um, the, the small chip that's giving them a little effusion that becomes a fracture eventually. So, I mean, I think that that just the interactions and, and putting the practicing vet back in charge of the healthcare for the horses is so helpful. Um, and I think that really allows a lot of horses to to race further into their age. I totally agree with the, those two things there. One is that the, the referring veterinarian, the, the track practitioner, their armamentarium or whatever you would call it, their, their um, doctor's bag has increased so much in quality that they could take a digital radiograph at the track photograph it, send it to you in a text, talk to a surgeon or talk to someone who has some familiarity with that problem and get the right advice right away. So they have very, very good diagnostic skills at the track. And secondly, I get asked now more than ever by owners and trainers that they've made the economic um, calculation and said, you know, I'm, I'm spending 40, 50,000 a year training this horse. It's really not performing well let's move it on and let's take this option that we now have. So that there's so many more open doors for these horses that weren't there before and it has made it a lot easier. You're really not getting a lot of those 
lower level cheap lame horses than you were before because no one can afford to train them around here i mean it's just not economically viable so i think it's dramatically improved for those two reasons and what do we think would help on a day-to-day basis just going back for a second to the veterinarians themselves the professionals themselves what do we think would help day to day? Because what I'm hearing, obviously, clearly from the horse side, definitely the network works. When you've got, uh, you know, vets, whether they're kind of, as Bill was saying, they kind of oversee each other or they're kind of looking out for each other and they're saying, hey, maybe you're towing the line a little bit here. We have the regulatory side of it saying overlooking. And again, it seems like that that uh, that's working but when it comes to actual veterinarians and also especially the younger generation of veterinarians now that are coming in the 20s 30 somethings that are coming in that might be struggling early on how do you think do any of you think there either something exists or something could be implemented that could help those veterinarians make that transition from coming out to out of school and then getting into a healthy burgeoning practice like all of you of course have done and now have gone on to successful careers well an internship or mentorship is vital you just there's so much lay of the land that you don't get in school so really mentoring and interning with someone else at least for a year i think is is tremendous asset well it does seem like there's just an issue a a shortage right it industry-wide. But if we're talking about the shortage at the top level, and we all know this, um, Santa Anita, Gulfstream Park, Churchill Downs, these are A-level tracks. What's happening at the lower tracks? If If there are shortages at the top, what's happening at the bottom? Yeah. Well, I mean, even on both sides, regulatory and private. I'd like to speak to that a little bit because my experiences in racetrack Veterinary medicine has spanned going from places like Kansas City to Hoosier Park to Canterbury, a place where I really loved, but couldn't stay there very long. Um, and and uh, all places, you know, kind of in between. And what I see is obviously the best horsemen are at the best racetracks. Uh, but at the lower ends, I'm getting in an area that I'm, I'm going to be a little careful here, but I don't think a whole lot of trainers at the lower ends are have done enough, had enough mentoring, had enough, um, well, let me just say this. I see a lot of grooms and hot walkers, all of a sudden they become owners and trainers within a short period of time. And I don't think commissions are making them have enough background and enough training with the right people in order to be out there training a horse, particularly, you know, if, if it's their own. You see it happen all the time. And, and uh, those people, a lot of those people have the one more race syndrome. A horse was given to them because an owner was tired of that horse. So this groom picks up this horse and three or four guys own it. and They're going to squeeze doctors. We want you to inject everything on him so we can get him over there and see if we can make a few dollars. Hey, I'm not your guy. I'm not doing that. You know, that's not me. Uh, and what you really need to do is move the horse on to a retirement situation. 
Um, so I see a lot of situations where people shouldn't either be owning or training horses because they don't have an apprenticeship. They don't have the right kind of training, mentoring, all sorts of things that I think would make them smarter about what they're doing with that horse. Uh, they're oftentimes the same people that were having issues with animal husbandry. In other words, taking care of those animals, feeding properly, taking care of injuries, wounds, etc. Uh, and I saw a lot of it at, at, at places where the purses weren't very big. Um, and I would say that, uh, uh, you know, at the A-level racetracks, you're going to have some, but you're not going to see it much. But when you go to some other tracks, you're going to see it as a much more prevalent situation. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of the reality of it. I think what Dion was trying to say a minute ago about rehoming these horses is we want to rehome these horses while they can still do another discipline. Maybe they can be dressage. Maybe they can be jumpers. Maybe they could just be a horse that somebody could ride in the backyard for somebody, but not just a lawn ornament. We don't want these horses to be so much pain. They limp from the middle of the pasture back to the feed tub at night and their existence is not good. We want these animals to, to have another job in life. Animals like to work. They like to please humans, particularly horses and dogs and, and horses love to please humans. And, and uh, so that last race mentality that she spoke of and Patty spoke of, I think a lot of that is if we can kind of get rid of some of these people owning horses that are not prepared to own them yet because maybe they haven't been educated enough or certainly they don't have the financial resources to probably take care of that horse. I know this is the United States and we have a free enterprise system, but we've got to protect these horses from some folks that don't understand what good animal husbandry is and what their level of greed might be. I mean, it's, I, I see it. I've seen it. I don't like it. Just don't like it at all. What I hear from all of you is really an intense passion and love for horses. Like it just, it comes out, it just radiates from all of you. And I guess that's what you're saying in the beginning, that this is why you chose this profession. And most people, when they get into veterinary medicine, they choose this profession because it really is something that they feel intensely. And it seems like some of the things would almost like break your heart when you see it and you see something going wrong or some you're watching something it play out in real time. Maybe you have no control over it breaks your heart. And also you see some people go off on the wrong path, let's say, when maybe they started off with good intentions, but somehow at some point, at some juncture, they just, whereas you, you, you were saying that, you know, oh, I just, you know, I'm not going to, Bill, you were saying that, I, you know, there's some instances where I'm just not going to treat that. I'm not going to do that. And some people at some point, when they get to that juncture, they don't say that. They don't say, I'm not going to do that. And they go ahead and they go off into another direction. But what do all of you think, like, again, that intensity, you know, where it can be really intense, obviously it's a love for the horse, but it also could be heartbreaking for the things that some of the things you're seeing, where, how do you deal with that 
daily that up and down that that emotion because you obviously love horses all of you yeah, so and you, you are all human beings who love animals yeah. i mean at the end of the day a simple question how does it make you feel i mean the the bad things make you feel horrible just like anyone um but i mean i i think for me i can't look at the day-to-day because -day, i'm gonna have really bad days and i'm gonna have hopefully a lot of really great days. I look at where we're headed. You know, are we improving the industry? Are we making things better? Are we seeing fatalities drop? Are we seeing horses racing healthy longer? If, if I feel like we're still moving, that's what keeps me going personally is that there are still things we can do to help. Um, I think if, if it were just the day in day out of, of uh, uh, maybe accepting the way it was done 20 years ago, I wouldn't be able to do this, but because we can change, I think, and we have changed, I think that's where my satisfaction comes in. For me, it's <clears throat> very personal days. Um, like I'm like a high-end auto repair shop for sports cars, but these sports cars are animals that have personalities and, they react to you. So when I have a particularly hard case, if I lose that case, it's really tough. I still think of horses that I, you know, had worked on that I had to euthanize 20 years ago. So they're all individuals, you know, and that's, that's the hard part for me is that um, they're real live animals and, and, you know, you just, you get to know them and they get to know you and you know, you can sense when one's trusting you or how they feel about you or they're apprehensive, whatever it is. And you just, you try to win them over. So I take every day as a, every day, but I have some days that are really tough or I can't sleep because I'm worried about a horse or I come over at three o'clock in the morning because I just want to make sure it's okay. You know, so it's still very, very personal for me because I, I have very individual relationships with these horses. So um, I don't know what it'll do to me when I'm 70 or 80, but, but for now, um, you know, it's an incredible career, but it, it does have some real highs, but some real lows. Well, I, this is, this is, a, I think this is probably a great place to, to, uh, to end it, but I think we'll just conclude by saying, I think it's conversations like this that really are going to get people talking and really get people, uh, maybe things to actually to continue to change and to progress. But I want to thank all three of you for coming on. I know I appreciate it. Gabby, of course, uh, appreciates it too, but really we've, uh, we've just enjoyed having you guys on. <laughs> thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, we just got finished recording another episode of Let's Talk presented by First Racing. And this was really interesting, Christina. I'm curious to get your perspective on it. But for me, it was you can you can definitely tell that these vets absolutely love horses, love animals. And at the end of the day, they're trying to do what's best for the horse. It's so it's such a labor-intensive um, profession, 
in terms of not only when you're going through school, when you get out of school, out of vet school, when you go into practice, you work these long hours, you work these crazy hours. And I, having worked at a veterinary hospital, small animal practice years ago, you also see the there's it's an environment where there's a level of you've got to be objective and you've got to do the task at hand. And sometimes it's pretty it's pretty intense. But at the same time, there's definitely an emotional aspect because you love the animal and you see that with them because they're professionals. They do their job. They do a fantastic job, obviously, because they're very success, successful in this uh, profession. But they also have that emotion, that pull towards these animals. So I think really to be a vet, it's almost the thing where, um, Gabby, you and I, we've discussed this. It's, it could be a challenging profession for many people um, in terms of the emotional, the uh, stress the pressures, you know, we've even discussed there's a level of um, uh, just depression that that comes with this profession. So I think that they really showed the best of the trade. And there are a lot of people out there like them. They're not the only ones. And the ones, unfortunately, that get the that garner the headlines, unfortunately, very unfortunately, they're the very small percentage, but those are the ones that get on the headlines. And you get the feeling that they, from a practicing, practicing standpoint and a regulatory standpoint, um, even a surgical standpoint, as Dr. Patty was mentioning, there are huge obstacles um, that each have to overcome within the industry. I think we can all agree that we've come a long way in the last five years, especially, but I think we still have a long way to go. And I still think it's, it's fascinating to me that all the different states, all the different jurisdictions, all of the different rules and regulations and the practicing vet has to know all of all of this not even if you're treating a horse say in kentucky and you know the rules and regulations there you need if that horse is shipping to new york or if that horse is shipping to maryland or delaware you need to know all of those rules and regulations and it just seems really overwhelming and that uh kind of trickles on to i think the reason why we're not getting new young vets in the sport too, because there's so much pressure um, to maintain these positions. So I just thought it was a really fascinating conversation. I definitely learned a lot. I'm sure you did too. You know, community, community, community. If you saw that that's really what came across from all of them is that community, that sense of community. And look, even if they don't always agree with each other on every issue, it happens. Uh, we see it every day, but they do a lot. They really fundamentally at the bottom, like the bottom line is they love horses. They love what they do. They love their profession. They love the industry. And that's what propels them forward. So this was really, really a great, great conversation. And I hope we have more of them to really propel this industry. Me too.